Hi, I'm Ronnie West. I'm the education pastor here at the Heights. And I'm Jerry Allen Witt. I'm a next generation pastor. Uh, as the education pastor, I get the opportunity to lead a team that assists our church from the very young members to our very seasoned members also in uh, really identifying what it means to be a mature believer. We want to help people to invest in growth. We want to help them to find their purpose and then to embrace God's mission for what He has for them. So as an education pastor, I kind of take on the role of really leading our, our life group ministry. And trust me when I say that you don't want to miss this. You're missing a very significant part of what it means to be a part of our church if you're not in life group. We also have James Ford, who is our singles and discipleship pastor. He oversees our discipleship university on Wednesday nights and also does some teaching and gives oversight to our singles ministry. Jerry, as a next generation pastor, share with us what you do. Yeah, I oversee our, I guess our preschool children and youth department and uh, what I do, I give leadership and I also cast vision for how we can most effectively uh, reach families and also educational wise too, just with curriculum stuff, keeping us all on the same page, uh, learning from preschool through children, uh, through high school ministry. Uh, but one of my main jobs is just really uh, equip parents and their home and how to uh, raise your kids in a, an environment that uh, and glorifies Christ because we believe what happens in the home is more important than what happens on church on Sunday morning. What are some of the members of our Next Generation staff? Uh, one of our members is uh, Brandy Paltrop. She does our preschool ministry, so you'll see her every Sunday morning as you check in your uh, little toddler down there. And you'll see also Angela Tony. That's our children's ministry. Uh, she's our director of our children's ministry. And we have Will Koski, who's our student pastor at our church. We also want to introduce you to a family, Mike and Rebecca Gormley. The reason we want them to share their story with you today is because their family has been impacted by many of the areas of our educational ministries here. We first got involved with the Heights Baptist um, Youth Group. It's through the ministries in the youth department that got me connected to God and, and ultimately led to my salvation. We met um, high school and youth group and we got married and then moved away for eight years. When we came back, uh, we, we wanted to get plugged in. We had some issues with, with within our own relationship with our child, um, with difficulties there. Um, that's where we came up uh, across the Growing Kids God's Way ministry. We took that class, met some great couples, and um, then uh, we actually taught the class for a couple years after that. Being connected at the Heights has been really foundationally strong for us. It's being connected to God through others. It's that fellowship. Um, it's allowed us to connect to people with like beliefs and, and like issues and, and, and growing together in the world, uh, but in a Christ-centered manner. You know, God commands us to serve, and not only does it help me spiritually, but it helps our family, and we're doing something together. We're serving the Lord together. <laughs> <laughs> We were made to be connected to God, connected to the gifts He's given to us, and connected to each other in real community. That's what our church is striving to be about, being connected. Because here at the Heights, we believe life is better connected. Well, here we are. Someone's going to lose tonight. <laughs> I mean, I know I could say someone's going to win tonight, and that would be equally true also, right? But I'm, 
I don't know, I'm just kind of feeling more this someone's going to lose tonight. Now, I'm not trying to be overly pessimistic about my Broncos. As a matter of fact, on the way out the house this morning, Karen says, you're only wearing two of the three colors, blue and white. Well, well, aren't you going to show your colors? No, I got my orange on too. I'm good to go. Always all Bronco, always all the time, okay? Don't ever think that. But my Broncos are two and five in the Super Bowl, and two of those five losses are two of the worst losses in Super Bowl history. So I've been stung here before. They're, they're, they're kind of taking the fun out of pregame hype for me. You know, I, I always say one of my favorite times is pregame or preseason because nobody's lost, right? Pre-game, pre-season, there, there's all the hope, there's all the dream, there's, there's all the possibility, but I'm just kind of stuck on where possibly the dream ends about 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> you know, losing is such an incredible reality of life. Boy, that'll put me on the motivational speaker tour, won't it? But, but it really is the great reality of life, way more so than winning. Everybody loses and winners lose. Hey, we lose our keys We lose a game, we lose a deal, hey, we lose jobs, we lose friends, we can lose a mate. And you know, if you stop and think about it, and I'm trying not to take us too far down this dark hole, but what's your last act on this earth? It's to lose your life. Trying not to be overly pessimistic here. I know right now somebody's thinking, well, I'm sure glad I got up to come sit under Johnny Raincloud this morning. But you know what? It's, it's taking a moment to kind of stop and embrace the reality, the overwhelming reality of losing that, folks, gives us a chance to really get excited, enjoy, and celebrate God and what he gives us in the gospel. Something we can't lose. His, his love, his salvation. We call this doctrine, we call this belief eternal security. Maybe you've heard it referred to as once saved, always saved. You know, I believe this is such an an important doctrine. As a matter of fact, kind of early in my ministry, this was a a, a belief, a doctrine, a message. I kind of thought, you know, I want to pull this one out and and do this quite a bit. I want to kind of keep this very regular. And I I was thinking of that and, and started going through my calendar and was really disheartened. I'm sure hoping I missed something once or twice, but I think the last time I preached on eternal security was six years ago. That's not okay. Why didn't anybody in here challenge that? You know, we need this in a world where we can lose anything. Do you realize, folks, and I think it's just a self-defense mechanism that keeps us from seeing this reality. Do you realize you possess nothing that you can't lose? Not a relationship, not a gift or ability, not, not uh, possessions, not a job. You possess nothing that you can't lose, nothing that you can't lose this week. How overwhelmingly destructive would it be to have that placed in front of us without, without something we can anchor to that, that we can't lose So we're going to talk about eternal security today. Maybe I'm just preparing myself for the game tonight. I don't know. But but eternal security is going to be our topic. Charles Ryrie, a great theologian, defines eternal security this way. It is the work of God which guarantees that the gift of salvation once received... Now those two words are huge. Okay, we're not talking about eternal security for a person or if a person 
has not received. Okay, we're not trying to work out that. No, once they've received the gift, then it is forever and it cannot be lost. You know, I think a lot of us, I don't, I don't know what number or percentage, I think a lot of us, this is something we know, this is something we believe. Would you believe there is a, a significant number in the Christian faith that find this a reprehensible idea? Uh, a, a horrible idea. I mean, folks, whole denominations are, are built around a doctrine that says, no, you can lose your salvation. You, you can become a child of God and then through actions on your part, things done wrong on your part, you can end up not being a child of God. And, and the reason they find this such an awful idea is because in their mind, it, it removes any real motivation for holy living. It removes any motivation to be obedient. It seems to cast this idea that, that you and I can lay hold of the precious treasure of Jesus and then live in a way that mocks him. Hold the hand of Christ and then live in a way that, that rebels against him. And, and for them, that, that loss of motivation, I mean, yeah, you know, I guess it would be motivating if we could kind of keep the fires of hell just kind of on a low simmer right around us, right? And maybe as a preacher, I could do a little better at motivating you, but you know, you know, but is that what scripture says? Do, do we use hell as a, as a motivation against believers? I know, I know the Bible tells me that when Jesus hung on the cross, that he said, it is finished. Everything necessary for you to be rescued from sin, death, and hell. Everything necessary for you to be adopted as his very own child. Everything necessary for you to have the opportunity to stand before God rightly, in good standing. That whole package, it's finished. It's complete. Only conditioned upon one thing. It does have to be received. Matter of fact, it says that in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, okay, we have to receive him, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. Now, there's not two things here that we need to do, receive and believe, but rather believe is just further elaboration, explanation of what receiving is. When we're receiving Christ, we are believing. We're believing that he is the Son of God. We are believing that he hung on a cross, that he died on a cross for our sins. We're believing that he rose again on the third day, proving he had conquered sin and death and hell, proving that he is the son of God. And folks, if we believe that, and let's be honest, there is a, a form of belief that is very vanilla, very plain, very uneffectual. But if we really believe that, then would he not be the great affection in our lives? Would he not be the great master of our lives? When we believe, we receive him into our lives. Notice it does not say to all who received him and accomplished a certain level of obedience. That's who becomes his children. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say all who received him and maintained a certain level of holiness. No, it doesn't say that. It says those who received, they became his children. And folks, the scripture teaches at the same time he's adopting us, at the same time that we're becoming his child, that in a court of heaven, he is declaring us holy. 
It doesn't mean that at that moment we're living holy, that we're being holy. It means in a legal sense, we are declared holy. And then God begins a work of making us holy. Justification is declaring us holy. Sanctification is us growing in holiness, becoming more and more holy. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this. Man, it's awesome to have some things we can be sure of. I am sure of this, that he, God, who started a good work in you. When did he start the work? When we received Christ. When we received, a work begins making us his child. A work begins declaring us holy. And he who began that work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Now folks, if one person... Just one person could lose their salvation. If there was one person that could see the work start but not complete, then this verse isn't okay, is it? I mean, if, if the idea is true that somebody could fall out of the process, then we would have to rewrite this verse. I don't, I don't know entirely how it would sound. I, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work, what, in many of you? In some of you? In a few, I don't know what we would have to add, but it couldn't just imply that all he begins the work, he completes the work. But that is what it says, isn't it? That for all who he begins the work, that work will come to completion. Folks, the work starts by God. It, it is maintained and sustained by God. And the work finishes in God. It's his work. And the result of that is, he gets all the glory. Ephesians 2.9 says of your salvation, of my salvation, that it is not of works so that no one can boast. Folks, when I talk about being saved, I talk about being a child of God, being declared holy. I, I can't point to anything about me. That doesn't say anything about me. It points to Him. It points to who He is and to what He has done in our lives. Now this is such a an important idea, you will find this truth, this idea taught all the way through the, the New Testament. Every single book will address this, point to this. Some, almost the entire book or, or, or the main theme of that book is this idea. Galatians is one that comes to my mind. Paul writes to this group of believers in Galatia who, who understood grace. They understood the cross. They understood how you come to the cross by faith. That you put your trust in the blood of the cross and what it accomplished. They got all that. So they started off great. But then a group of Jews came to these Galatian believers, believing Jews. And they said, hey listen, you're right there. You've got it. You've done everything right. You just now need to be circumcised. You, you need to add this. In effect, what they were saying is you need, you need to become Jewish. And to that idea in Galatians 1, Paul says, cursed, cursed be the person who delivers such an idea. Folks, Paul's problem wasn't being Jewish. He was Jewish. Paul, Paul's problem there wasn't circumcision. He was circumcised. What he is cursing is an idea that it is the cross plus something. In Galatia, in that generation, at that time, with this kind of this transition from Christianity and, and Judaism going on, it was this idea, hey, do we bring some things from the old country? <laughs> do we bring some things from the old faith? And so it's the cross plus this. But do you know, if you'll stop and think about it, every generation, every group of people 
wants to add something to the cross. Oh, it's, it's coming to the cross and never being that and never doing that. You, you, you can't be saved if that's true. It, it's the cross plus. You better do that. It's the cross plus this. There's just something in us that wants to add something. It's like, hey, listen, we're all fine and good with praising God for, for doing almost all of this. It kind of to go with the theme of the day. Man, God carried the ball 99 and a half yards. But now, come on. You know, we got to do our part. We got to pick up the ball and, and punch it in. Is that what the scripture says? That we just pick up the ball and punch it in? You know, Paul addresses that very thing in Galatians 3.3. He says, having begun in the Spirit. Okay, I know we already all agree on that. I know we already believe in that. That it was a work of God. It's the Spirit of God that started this. So having begun in the Spirit, are you now under the idea that you're going to pick the ball up and finish it? That, that, that this work is going to be completed in the flesh. That's an effort, that's a reference to my effort and to my work. And that's the idea that Paul says, cursed. That's a harsh word in the New Testament. Cursed be the person who would bring such an idea, who, who would communicate such an idea. The work begins with God. The work is sustained by God. And the work is completed by God. Folks, you are incredibly loved. And the entire Godhead, the entire Trinity is involved in securing you in a position where you can receive God's love for you. In securing your salvation and in keeping you saved. Let me show you. This is, this is awesome just how much loved you are. Folks, the Father's power... The Father's power keeps you saved. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able. Who's able? God. Not me. We're not, we're not getting ready to address my ability. We're addressing God's ability. We're addressing the Father's power. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling. Who is going to protect me from falling off the path? Who is going to protect me from, from seeing a process started, but then I stumble out of it? It's the Father. He's able to protect me from stumbling and to make me stand. Look at the, this is so incredible. To make me stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy. Is it my obedience this week that is going to give me the opportunity to stand in God's presence, blameless and with great joy? No. It's God's power that's going to give me that opportunity. It is God's power that saves me. It is God's power that keeps me saved. And to deny, to attack eternal security is to attack that power. It is God who puts me in that spot. Amen? And it's not just the Father's power, it's the Son's payment that keeps us saved. If anyone does sin, and, and we do, don't we? I'm not talking about before we were a believer. No, as a believer, we, we sin. And, and, and when that happens, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a, a lawyer. We have somebody who will stand with us, who will stand for us, who will plead our case. His name is Jesus. He is the righteous one. And He Himself, our advocate, is the very one who is the propitiation Boy, use that word at a Super Bowl party this afternoon. That'll make you popular. 
Propitiation. We don't throw that word around a whole lot, do we? It's kind of a monetary term, you know, coming from this language. It has the idea of fully satisfying a debt. So you and I are indebted to God. We're, we're, we're in the red because of sin. And we can't fix it. We can't pay it. We are bankrupt. But Jesus comes and by his work on the cross, through his blood, he becomes the propitiation. He becomes the full and satisfying payment for my sin. He becomes the full and satisfying payment for my debt. Folks, to attack eternal security is to attack that propitiation. It's to attack that that payment, you know, well, it paid for everything but the stuff that follows. No, that's, folks, all of our sin is in the future when Jesus is hanging on the cross, isn't it? All of our sin is propitiated by his payment. But not only, when you attack eternal security, not only are you attacking the past work at the cross, you're attacking the present work of Jesus as our advocate, you know, Jesus teaches us that, that one of the names of Satan or a, a way he is known is as the father of lies. Satan's the father of lies, which kind of makes sense why God doesn't want us lying. He doesn't want us being like our old father, the liar. He wants us being like the new father, the one who's truth, right? But Satan is the father of lies. It's his character. That, that's what spews from him. There's only one place that I know for sure that Satan constantly tells the truth. Satan tells the truth when he stands before God and talks about you because you're guilty. You're not blameless. You, you don't deserve to stand there. You don't deserve to be rewarded. You are quite unholy. You are quite unlike God in his heaven, as am I. And Satan will stand before God and he will make sure that God saw, God remembered, God knew, God noticed all those places that prove you don't belong there. And as that activity is going on, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who will stand up and say, Father, it's all true, but I paid for every single bit of it. It has been satisfied in full. It is the Son of God who is our payment. It is the Son of God who is our advocate. And it keeps us saved. And folks, it is the Holy Spirit promised that keeps us saved. Look at Ephesians 1 here. The Holy in Him, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment. He is the deposit of our inheritance. The inheritance is what we receive when we're standing before the throne, blameless and with great joy. This takes us, okay, we start off when you were sealed, that's the moment we're saved, and it takes us all the way out to heaven when we're standing in the presence of God. You, you ever uh, signed a contract and had to put down a deposit? You know, we, we, we put some conditions together, we're buying something and, and, and we put down a deposit and if we don't complete the contractual obligations, if we don't come through with the rest of the payment, what happens to our deposit? We, we lose it. Okay, so now God has struck a deal through the blood of His very own Son to save you and to save me from sin, death, and hell. And at that moment that we were saved, He put down a deposit. We were sealed in the Holy Spirit. He put down a deposit of the Holy Spirit 
promising and guaranteeing that we're going to end up with an inheritance. That we're going to end up standing at the throne blameless and with great joy. If God does not come through on that promise, He loses the deposit. What's the deposit? The Holy Spirit. In other words, God loses Himself. He has put himself down as a deposit that he will complete this deal and he loses them. That can't happen, can it? God has guaranteed. And the reason he has, folks, is because that's the purpose of the entire Godhead. It is to see you saved and to keep you saved. Look what Jesus says in John. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my Father who sent me, Jesus, that I should lose none. When you are saved, when you become a child of God, the Father places you in the hands of Jesus. And it is Jesus that secures you. It is Jesus that, that will be sure that you will rise on the last day. It's the Father's will that Jesus lose none. If just one person... If just one person could fall out of the process, if just one person could, could be saved and then unsaved, here again, this is not said right. That, that word none won't work. I, I don't know, how would it be written? That I should lose just a few? That, that I wouldn't, I, I'd be able to hold on to most? I, I, I don't know how you'd write it, but you sure couldn't use the word none, could you? Folks, it is the work of the entire Godhead to save you and to keep you saved. You are that loved by your Father. You are that loved by the Son. You are that loved by the Holy Spirit. Now, I have, I've presented the idea of eternal security from the verses that communicate that, from the ideas that communicate that. But there is another side. There are some challenging questions. There, there are some challenging verses, some questions, questions I've heard you ask. Questions you've asked me. I think questions that, that come to all of us. As a matter of fact, as I start to ask this question, I'm guessing a face will come to some of your minds. Because we will ask this question. Well, I, you know, I know this person and they came to Christ last year. They received Christ 10 years ago. But gosh, I mean, there's just no evidence that that really happened. Man, I know they said they had this experience, or I, I was there, I saw what, what perceived to be real and genuine, but there just, nothing really has followed that that looks like that person really, or, you know, what happened? Or, or let's go a step further. This person has some experience, they've received Christ, believed in Christ, and, and, and three and a half years later, they say, hey, I reject Christ. I don't know what I was doing back there. As a matter of fact, I hate him. I don't believe in him. I rescind. I rescind my faith, my belief. Okay, what about that person? Is that person still... Can, can you live a whole life after receiving Christ and never really live like it? Can you receive Christ and reject him and still be saved? Folks, if... And that's a... That little two-letter word's a, a huge word. If they genuinely received Christ, yes... Absolutely, they are still saved. Because while what they're doing is a horrible sin, it is a horrible sin that has been fully satisfied at the cross. It is a horrible sin that has been fully paid for by Jesus Christ. It is a sin. 
And it is a sin in which there will be consequences for in this life and in the life to come. We'll see that in just a moment. But it is a sin in which they are still saved. Now let me go back to the if. I believe it's in Matthew 7, Jesus points to, and as do other passages in the New Testament, points to the idea that there, are ver- there is very much the, the possibility, and I'll use language that we would use, that, that a churchgoer, uh, a, a religious person, a religious person that, that's covered this duty and that duty and done this. I mean, the kind of people you would say, oh, that's a Christian, that's a believer. Jesus says there's very much the possibility that somebody's out there living and saying they know me and they don't. They're, they're, they're not saved. So it is, it is quite possible, the New Testament says it, to be professing Christ. Have y'all heard this before? To be professing but not possessing. I'm professing that I know Jesus, but I don't know Jesus. And when we ask those questions like earlier, more than likely, that is what we're talking about in a lot of those cases. You know, when when somebody says they came to Christ, but then there's no evidence, there's no life to follow. They they come to Christ, but then they turn around and reject it. More than likely there, we're not talking about eternal security. We're talking about somebody who never had salvation to begin with. Okay? So that's not losing it. That is just that their life has given proof that they never had it to begin with. So there are some challenging ideas to work through there. There are some challenging verses. As a matter of fact, how's this? Nine. There's nine verses in the New Testament. Well, that's very exact, isn't it? Maybe I should make a range. I'll say eight to twelve. Depending on how you say something is implied or you believe it's coming. I I would say there's 8 to 12 verses in the New Testament. That as you read those verses, it sounds like quite possibly we're looking at a person that's saved and now they're not. They became a child of God, but they have fallen out of that. There's a, I'm going to go ahead and stick with nine for a moment. There's nine passages. Like what's interesting, six of them are in the book of Hebrews. So right there you say, what's going on in Hebrews? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But there, there, so there's, there's nine passages. Well, how many would be communicating the idea of eternal security? A hundred. Now that's not meant to be an exact number, give or take a few. It's a, over a hundred passages, folks, are directly teaching, implying, communicating the idea of eternal security. So what we do in biblical interpretation is, on, on any subject, is we take a multitude of passages to help us interpret and understand a few that maybe don't seem to fit in or contradict. We take passages that are simple and easy to understand to help us interpret those that are a little bit more difficult and challenging to get through. So let's do that right now. Let's take one of these passages that, that appears that looks like somebody's, somebody had it and now they've lost it and, and see if we can use other scripture to help us interpret what is going on there. We have Hebrews 6. I said there's six passages in Hebrews. I'm not saying all of them would be interpreted this, exactly the same. I think this is the toughest of them right here. For it is impossible to renew to repentance... Those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have what? They've fallen away. They they were in that position, but they've fallen away from it. They've fallen out of it because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. That is a... That, 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 that last line right there, that, that scares me. Does that scare you? 
I, I hope it does. I mean, I'm leaving the sermon, by the way. I'm not on the sermon anymore. I'm just thinking about, man, because I know in my life, there's sins I say I'm sorry for with really no commitment to change. I mean, I'm sorry I did that, Lord. I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to do anything to actually make sure that doesn't happen again. Man, you know, when I stay devoted to my sin, committed to my sin, I'm re-crucifying the Son of God, holding him up to my children, to my wife, to my friends, to the church. I'm holding him up in contempt should break our heart to think that our lives could do something like that. To our great affection? To our great master we would do that? Okay. We're back in the sermon now. Now, folks, in our camp of those who believe in eternal security, there are some who would approach a a passage like this and they would explain this kind of the way I did a moment ago and say, well, this person wasn't really saved to begin with. This is somebody who professed Christ but never really possessed him. And I think there are some passages in which you can answer it that way. I don't think you can with this passage. It would be easier to dismiss this passage as saying, oh, this was never a believer to begin with. I just look at the description of that person. It is impossible to renew to repentance. If you renew a contract, that means you had a contract to begin with, right? So if you're renewing to repentance, that means repentance was at one time there. This is a person that that, that tasted the heavenly gift, that tasted God's word. Folks, that word taste throughout the Bible is the idea of a genuine experience. The Psalms invite us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and experience how good God is. So that, that word taste, and this line companions with the Holy Spirit. How can you possibly be a companion of the Holy Spirit and not be saved? How can you possibly be a companion of the Holy Spirit and not be a believer? So I do believe this passage is talking about a believer. So what do I do with renewed repentance? What do I do with fallen away? Is, that, is, is there another passage... That, that, that describes maybe this kind of person, this kind of situation, but, but makes it clear to us whether or not this person is still saved. Well, yes, there is. I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 3.11. As you're turning there, let me say something real quickly about Hebrews. Because like I said, there are six of the nine or so passages that communicate this are in Hebrews. The, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people where it appears that a real character quality of the group... And not, not just an individual, particular person, but kind of the character quality of the whole group could be described as lazy. They're lazy about their faith. They're negligent with their faith. They're apathetic about their faith. And so as you read through Hebrews, he's trying to stir the waters. He's trying to get this group moving. And he's saying, hey, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't okay. You, you can't live that. Man, learn something about God. Learn from his word. Let what you learn motivate you to, to godly living and to holiness. If you read through Hebrews, that's what you're hearing. And you have these six passages. It's warning the lazy, the apathetic, the negligent. It's warning them, hey, there's a price for this. There's a cost for this. Now, let's see, did this person, is the cost a loss of salvation? 
Can this be explained? Look at 1 Corinthians 3.11. Let each one now... Wait a minute, I started in the wrong spot. There it is. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Each person's work will be revealed, will be seen. For the day... In your Bible, is the word day capitalized? Yeah, it's capitalized in mine too. That Every time you see the day, when it's referring to this one day, Old and New Testament, it's talking about the big day. The big day that everyone in humanity is moving towards. The judgment day. So every life is moving toward that day, and the day will disclose it, it being our lives, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Listen to verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Now, what do we just hear in this passage? First of all, we lay a foundation in Christ. Everybody being discussed in 1 Corinthians 3 has laid a foundation in Christ. That's when a building begins, right? And that's when a life begins. You realize your life counts for nothing. It means nothing before Christ is in your life. I mean, I know we can run around being very busy, doing a lot of stuff on planet Earth, but none of it counts. None of it means anything. Think about what we've learned this last month. We talked about being born again, and prior to being born again, we're spiritually dead. Well, a spiritually dead person can't build anything of spiritual value. We've got to be born again. We've got to lay the foundation in Christ. So that's the starting point in verse 11. We're talking about people, they've laid the foundation. Now on that foundation, maybe you started building when you were three. Maybe you started building, I was 17. Maybe you started building on that when when you were 34. We start building. And then we go to heaven. We die. We, we get raptured. Who's okay with doing it by the rapture way? I think that'd be kind of cool. Got to be a good ride, right? Okay? So whatever happens, our life here is over and we end up, we're now in heaven and it says, now my life is going to be put into the fire. Not the fires of hell. A refining fire. I don't know why in my mind I picture it this way. I always have. I, I think of one of those big wood-burning pizza ovens. And so then my life is placed on one of those big paddles and and put in. You know, and there burns and then ding. And then out comes back my life. Now, while my life was in there, what was the fire doing? It was burning away. It was burning away my disobedience. It was burning away that which was not done in faith. It was burning away the things that I did that were right and good, but I did them with the wrong motive. Ever done the right thing, but maybe you did it so that people would like think highly of you? Let me answer the question for you. Yes, you have. It will burn away the right things I did, but uh, have you ever done this? You ever done the right thing, but just grumbled and whined all the way through it? Let me answer the question for you. Yes, you have. Man, we we all do that. Guess what? You get zip for that. Think of that. You're doing that good work, complaining the whole way, and get nothing for it. Yeah, that, that, that burns. That burns away. So then, ding, out comes my life. What's left 
is the basis of my reward. Now, what is the rewards? Rewards, as communicated throughout the New Testament, rewards are what I will use to glorify Christ. Rewards are what I will use to serve Christ. And a little bit more difficult to try to, I don't know quite how to picture this. Money is really what comes to my mind. Rewards are what I will spend in heaven. That's a very crude illustration of that. But it, rewards seem to become a resource by which I will do and experience some things in heaven. So, out comes my life. That's the basis of rewards. Now look at verse 15. Verse 15 pictures a life. It goes in the pizza oven. Ding! It comes back out. And there's... there's so, what, where's, there's nothing but ashes here. Where, where's my life? Nothing came out. And folks, I think what's being implied by verse 4, the same thing doesn't come out for all of us. There'll be a, a, a realm. There'll be a whole realm. But, but verse 15 seems to kind of go to a, an extreme. It's not that a little bit comes back out. Nothing comes back out. There's no basis on this pizza paddle to give this person a reward. Is this the person who came to Christ and then never, ever ever lived like it is this the person who received Christ and then turned right around for whatever reason and 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 rejected Christ I, I don't know it doesn't describe who this person is or what they've done but what does it say about them they're still saved folks if we had time and good gracious we're already out if, if, if we had time to look at all these passages you'll see words in these passages that we don't normally associate with heaven but look at verse 15 and look at three words that are there with a person that the scripture says is saved suffer loss and fire that's not three words we normally associate with heaven is it suffer loss and fire now you know what? You might read this. Well, this, good gracious, that really knocks the shine off of heaven, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's not at all what I thought heaven. Okay, this is not describing the person's eternal experience in heaven. It's describing that day. I mean, we have two, again, we use the wealth of passages to describe a passage, a verse. This is not saying, the, the verse 15 person, that their heaven will be defined by those three words. It won't be. This is a moment in time. And you know, if you stop and think about it, it actually is quite logical. It actually makes sense. We're going to step into heaven and we're going to see the glory of God. And I just think that immediately, even, even those of us as believers... We're just going to immediately be aware of, I had no concept of how real and how glorious he was. And I lived a lot of my life with no concept of how real and how glorious he was. When we step into heaven and we see these eternal rewards being given out and we realize the eternal rewards we're not getting because at a moment in time I chose sin. And I chose the sin because I really believed in my heart that that's what would protect me, that's what would provide for me, that's what would work for me in that moment. And maybe, maybe it did. Sin will work for a moment. Maybe that moment was 20 years long. Maybe that moment was 40 years. But what is 40 years when you're looking at eternity? It's not even the snap of a finger. And when I realized that I chose sin for milliseconds and gave away rewards for all eternity. Well, sure, that's a bad moment, isn't it? Now, I, I tell you what, as I look at this verse, I don't know how this is rectified. I don't know how do I go to bed and wake up the next day and okay, now I'm good with all that. I, I, I don't know. 
I, I don't know, but I don't believe that's the eternal experience. But what it shows us, folks, make no mistake about it, eternal security in no way demotivates holy living, godly living. Hey, listen, the only life that works is a life of obedience. The only path of blessing is a, is a path of holiness. God's, God's love does not free us up to live however we want and not care. And yes, in God's love, he will say, hey, there's consequences for doing that. There's consequences for acting like that. But folks, God's love is incredible. Have we seen that this morning? Man, think about, think about what eternal security means to us, what it does for us. Put all three of these up. I am way out of time. Eternal security means we have an incredible God who loves you. Listen to me. Listen to me. God's love for you is not some kind of vague, symbolic something or another feeling that fell out of heaven. God's love for you is concrete. It is real. It is active. It saved you from hate. It saved you from the lie. It saved you from the devil. And it keeps you saved. And the whole Godhead was involved in doing that for you. You are loved greatly by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Eternal security means we can actually serve God from a pure motive. I wish I could take more time to explain that. Folks, if you're working your way into heaven, or you got heaven as a gift, and now you're working to keep it, to hold on to it, do you realize, I don't think... I don't think under that mindset you can ever do thing, do anything for a pure motive of God and others. Because no matter what I'm doing that might serve you, at the end of the day, I'm ultimately serving myself, aren't I? I'm ultimately trying to get, get my way in, into heaven. Folks, only God's work frees me up. Man, I didn't come to church this morning hoping that'd make God happy with me. I came to church this morning to celebrate the fact that God is happy with me. At great expense to himself, he is happy with me. I didn't put something in the plate trying to buy God's favor. I put something in the plate because I get to enjoy God's favor every minute of every day in my life. Eternal security gives me a chance to purely worship him without having to do anything for myself and eternal security means we have something in this world we can't lose let me say it again you have nothing that you can't lose before you get back here next Sunday it's a scary thought that people experience all the time what would you anchor to in life where would you try to find any kind of joy and hope in that reality Folks, we find it anchoring to God's love. We find it anchoring to the work of what he has done for us. You know, folks, I am a, I'm a father. I have four kids. Man, I love those kids. I got four best kids in the whole universe. I'm sorry for the rest of you. I don't know who's got position five, six, and seven, but I, I own one through four. You know, and, and obviously, a lot of you know my kids, you've seen them grow up before us here, and, and they're beginning to develop a life separate and distinct from Karen and I. They're beginning to write a story that is no longer so, so tied to my story and, and, and to my home. And, and we know, we know the possibility. Some of us, unfortunately, have experienced it. It's not a hypothetical situation at all. I, I mean, there is the possibility one of my kids, more than one of my kids, could come back one day as they're writing their story and say, you know what, Dad, I reject you. 
I reject you. I reject your life. I, I, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't believe what you believe. I don't want to be about what you're about. And that would crush me. I can't imagine, I mean, right now, I really can't imagine anything in my life that would be more heartbreaking than that. But I'd still be their dad. And I'd still love them. And no doubt, if they were to go on and live that way, that would have, that, obviously, that would affect our relationship. It would affect our ability to enjoy that relationship. I, depending on what they were doing, I mean, there, there could be some scenario where I actually disinherit them. I'm, I'm not going to fund that way of life. I'm not going to fund who you've chosen to be and what you've chosen to do. But even if it got to that extent, I'm still their father. Folks, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you become his child. God becomes your father and he has promised, he has guaranteed that nothing will ever change that. And yes, absolutely, you and I can choose to live in ways that we don't enjoy all that it means that he is our father. We, we can live in ways that, that maybe we lose some things that, that could have been enjoyed in this life and in eternity because He is Father. We lose some of that, but He's still our Father. And the Scripture is so clear that I step into heaven, I step into His presence, blameless, with great joy for one thing, one condition, that He is my Father. And I am his child. No matter what I lose this day, this week, at any point in the rest of my life, I can never lose that. Praise God. Praise God. Let's praise him. As a matter of fact, instead of me closing in prayer, let's just applaud and worship the God who loves us and would save us. God, hear our applause. Hear our praise. Your love is amazing. Thank you, God.